I kind of had a choice at that point, not just being patient with the process, but being grateful with the process. And I'm like, mm, man, I went to my dad straight after the game. I'm like, yo, like this shit can't happen anymore, man. I always find the, always try to take the good out of any negative situation. You know, I have players coming in, Xavier, and they'd be like, um, you know, I played so bad. You know, sometimes I'd, I'd be like, hey, bro, hey, I don't know, we, we can't do nothing about that. I can tell you what we can do, we can get some work in right now. Like, if you're not doing plyometrics, you're losing out on a lot of potential for performance. Um, my dad had these tapes of the Laker games. Got to a point where I, I said, you know, I want to play basketball. And I just always wanted to make sure I had the edge over people. It became a part of me, you know, I, I didn't want anybody to get to be better than me. Hello, welcome back to season two of the Basketball and Barbells podcast. We've been trying to get this episode in the works for I don't even know how long now, but um, I finally got my guy out here, Isaiah West. We actually linked up on IG. I liked a lot of the stuff he was putting out, um, and he liked some of the stuff I was putting out. So we just kind of started talking. We would always conversate back and forth, but finally got him on. So for those who don't know who he is, Isaiah is actually a strength and conditioning coach located right now working with Healthy Baller in Maryland. So as a young athlete, Zay was always, always into performance. His thirst for knowledge actually led him to pursue a degree in kinesiology at D. George Mason University. So despite being a multi-year track and field and basketball athlete, he decided to focus on strength and conditioning going into college. While working at George Mason University, he worked with D1 men and women's basketball team as a strength and conditioning, strength and conditioning coach. He traveled to Senegal, Africa to serve as the first strength and conditioning intern with the NBA Academy in Senegal. He's worked with the WNBA Washington Mystics, and he's interned at Cressy Sports Performance. So basically, this guy is the GOAT, all right? He's like the GOAT GOAT in training. Um, Isaiah, thank you for coming on today, man, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I oh, appreciate that, man. You you don't you don't have to gas up my uh, my my bio like that. <laughs> but uh, I definitely appreciate that. You, I think you just set a new standard for what people need to do when they read my bio now. So <laughs> they got to put some respect on the dog. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now I appreciate you having me, man. This is um I'm like really humble, really grateful, and excited to be on the show. And kind of want to just let you know that I'm I'm proud of the work that you're doing. Like. It's not an easy endeavor to start your own podcast and make it all the way to season two. So I'm, I know I'm following a lot of great guests, but I'm just happy to be on the show, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem, man. Like, it's funny, like for people that aren't that have been listening, we've been trying to get this episode together for, I don't even know, I would say like a couple, like a couple months, maybe. Yeah, a couple months. Yeah, the schedule has been, been really crazy, but Isaiah has been crazy, like really like um just really been great about having patience and, you know, reaching out like, hey, man, like, this is my time. So I always knew I was going to have him on here. And then with some of the information he's been putting out, I definitely knew he was going to be my season two, episode one guest. And um, it helps that he's actually had a crazy resume. I didn't realize it until he sent it to me. I was like, oh, shit. OK, cool. <laughs> my guy's got some knowledge. So, so to get the ball in your court, homie, man, like, I want the people listening to kind of understand more about you where you come from so you know where are you where are you from you know what was it kind of like growing up and, and stuff like that absolutely so I'm I'm from New Jersey I come from a very athletic family like I'm the only one in my family that didn't play a college sport my sister ran track at North Carolina State 
my father played football D3. My, my mother played, uh, my mother ran track division three and still runs track competitively to this day. So I come from a very like active family. You know, my, my parents were coaching AAU track and basketball respectively for like a decade and a half. So sports was like all I knew growing up. We played outside nonstop. I was, there was, I remember days where I would run from football practice to soccer practice to track practice, you know, all in one day. Um, so growing up, I, I ran track, played basketball, played football, played soccer for a little bit. And by the time I got to high school, it was just focusing on basketball and track. And, um, yeah, it was just, everything revolved around sports. That's where my friends came from. That's where a lot of my travel opportunities came from. And I had a lot of extracurricular activities as well that my parents wanted to stress that I was as holistic as possible. So I did some other things outside of sports, like played instruments. I, you know, was a like a competitive public speaker. So it just gave oh, myself a lot of, yeah, gave myself a lot of like really dope skills growing up that have helped me out now. Um, and just try to like expand my, my palette for, for what I wanted to do in the world because I had so many cool experiences. So it was dope having, having all that around, like, uh, the town that we grew up in, um, Piscataway, New Jersey, the high school was nicknamed like NFL high. So we had all these, <laughs> like all these guys come out of this high school that went to, that went to the league. I had a neighbor that went to the league. So you're around like the culture around that town was you played sports. And my sister went to high school with guys that are now Super Bowl champions. So it was, it's cool to have that kind of culture growing up where you know it's normalized just to play and be outside and, and kind of explore movement from just a very competitive standpoint. So that, that's kind of what my childhood was like growing up in New Jersey. Damn, man. I didn't know. Um, damn. Like, you make, you make me look back at my childhood like, man, you competitive speaker? Like, play the instruments? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I played soccer and basketball, but uh, – I don't know if I was uh, overly talented like that, man. <laughs> oh, man. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So, you know, in the bio, like you sent me and everything like that, like, you know, you talked about, you know, pooping and stuff like that. And we even talked about a conversation before this, like you had some crazy basketball stories. So I wanted to make sure we got this to the public. So, you know, what was it like growing up hooping? And, and what were some of those crazy stories you got from me, man? Oh, my gosh. Um, I think. Like, I just want to go on record. I think the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Philly, is probably one of the top five best regions for basketball in the country. So there's so much talent that came out of New Jersey, and from very like from a very young age, we saw some of these like some of the best players in the state uh, play for free in high school. And my father's from New York, so he he grew up in New York City back when the Knicks were good. Um, and saw some of those fantastic performances, like the Willis Reed performance, got to see Clyde Frazier play, like got to see Larry Bird play. So he was always like really into the game. And one of the things that he wanted to make sure he passed down to me was the love of basketball. He didn't necessarily yeah. care if I went on to play pro or went on to play in college. He just wanted to have a bond with me through the game and taught me the game and taught me to taught me to appreciate the game and basically said like, if, if you appreciate this game and if you respect it, it'll give back to you, whether it's through memories, through friendships, through, you know, really cool opportunities to play in front of like these these great crowds. Like you're going to have a way to remember and be, look back one day, be nostalgic uh, about what this game was able to provide for you. So early on, like before I was even really competing in AAU, he was taking me all around the state to watch basketball games. We would see. 
Jason Williams, who went on to play at Duke, he played in New Jersey for St. Joe's. Kyrie Irving, Dexter Strickland, um, Al Harrington, Randy Foy. And this is back when, you know, some of these schools are still powerhouses now. Like they're, they're called the Patrick School now, but back in the day they were called uh, St. Patrick's. So oh, St. Yeah. Patrick's, St. Anthony's, St. Benedict's. You had St. Peter's Prep, Bloomfield Tech, Linden High School, like so you many. Play some monster, dude. <laughs> yeah, it was so many big time like powerhouses in the state that I had the opportunity to watch like up close and personal growing up, and I see some like some crazy battles. Um, and so many of these guys have gone on to play pro, and you see, look up and you see all these guys that are in the league now. Like you know, Dion Waiters played at Life Center Academy with LaQuentin Ross, and my high school would play Dion Waiters in high school. So you're seeing some of these guys who are now in the league, like drop 30 and a half in high school. And you're, you're kind of watching greatness like form right, right before your eyes. But the AAU culture in New Jersey was ridiculous as well. Like the AAU organization I played for New Jersey Roadrunners is the same organization that Kyrie Irving played for Al Harrington played for Randy Foy played for. And so when, you know, I was playing for the U16 team, this is right around the time Kyrie is, I think Kyrie is about to go to Duke this year. So he's mm. finishing up his senior year, you know, wasn't playing AAU anymore. He would come to practice to just play pickup. And you're talking about the future number one draft pick, like at 16, 17 years old, coming up my AAU practices <laughs> just to hang out. And he's on the sideline, like heckling guys and people get crossed over. Like that was the environment we grew up in. Uh, <laughs> like probably one of the craziest things I've seen was, we walk into practice one day and um, Kyrie's playing a pickup game and I'm getting dressed on the sideline. And out of nowhere, I see a ball like fly over my head and I look up like, man, who just threw a ball at me? And Kyrie Irving, I look back, is catching the ball. He just threw off the wall and dunks the basketball in transition, <laughs> like casually coming down transition, throws it off a wall, catches it and dunks it. It was, like, sick to see how this stuff kind of happened. Um, you know, I would see Oak Hill come to town. Like, they played at Rutgers University. So, oh, so many, like, dope stories growing up. Uh, so many competitive people, so many competitive schools that you got to be there for. Like, the basketball coach in, in Jersey is, is crazy and kind of still is at this point in time. Yeah, that damn, man. Like, that's that's crazy. Like, and you always, I always knew, like, basketball up north was just, like, always like and that on the west coast which is crazy you know but i never like i didn't know like all this was like in the same area like i didn't know st Saint anthony's was that close to st patrick's and all that but that's uh the fact that you got to experience all that like i'm jealous as hell like i had some you know i had like you know the high school i actually played for we played austin rivers um and uh, then, yeah, yeah played, played yeah played some other um some other players that like are overseas but yeah i mean like that was pretty much like the highlight like oh man i played austin rivers but it's like you got like Kyrie, you got Oak Hill putting out beasts and everything like that. Like that's that's wild, yeah. man. We saw and Oak like, Hill with Brandon Jennings play at Rutgers University when I was in middle school. The mythical national championship, I think I believe it was in 2013, was between St. Pat's and St. Anthony's. This is when St. Pat's had Michael Kidd Grill Chris. Um, St. Anthony's had Kyle Anderson, Miles Mack. I think he's playing in Turkey now. And this was, like, standing room only in Rutgers University. Yeah. And it was, like, flooded with talent. Like, the primetime shootout was in New Jersey. This is back when, I think, Carmelo Anthony played LeBron in, like, 2002 in Trenton, New Jersey. And I remember being at that game. So, like, you see all these, like, top talented athletes 
And for some reason, like a lot of this stuff was held in New Jersey, whether it was at the Prudential Center where the, the New Jersey Nets used to play a couple of years ago, or whether it was in Trenton or whatever the case may be, like this was a, a hotbed for, for high school talent for a long time. Yeah, god damn, man. Like that and like it's always something like you always hear about, like, you know, going up and seeing like basketball up north and like I would just hear, like it was even in Jersey, it'd be like in Philly, like people would tell me stories about know how even just like the the locals out there like the people that don't even play like high school college or even pro how their their talent is just way 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 higher level than anywhere else is anywhere in the world and i thought it was cap at first i was like come on man like let's i know you're from new york but let's let's stop it but yeah it was it was like that like before Lamelo ball dropped 92 points in high school game there was dewan wagner out of camden new jersey i had 100 points in a game so like (laughs) <laughs> talent has been coming out of New Jersey for a long time. Like the New Jersey players, uh, that AAU team, like Tim Thomas, who was one of the main guys who started that team, who was who was played in the NBA for a couple of years. He came out of New Jersey too. So it's like the list can go on and on for the amount of players that came out of the state. Um, but I mean, it was super competitive because New York kind of held that crown for a long time, and mm-hmm. Jersey started to catch up with the talent pool that they were putting out. So. It's kind of it's kind of super cool to see like guys you grew up with like I I used to play AAU basketball with Carl Towns like he and I are from the same exact town oh shit and <laughs> you know in 2015 he goes on to be number one draft pick so like this is like this type of talent was normal you know it was my yeah. AAU team I think and we Carl and I were on the same team from like probably third grade up until like his sophomore year of high school. Um, and on that team was myself, Wade Baldwin, Carl Anthony Towns, and obviously two out of the three became pros. And, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm a strength coach. But Wade, <laughs> Wade played with, uh, with the Portland Trailblazers last year, and obviously Carl's with the, with the Timberwolves. But, yeah, those, those guys were all in central New Jersey for a long time, like hooping and getting better and were grinding way before, like, the rest of the world kind of caught up to who they were. Yeah, facts, man. That makes me uh, – I've only been in New York one time, and I, I hated it out there just because, like, it was so crowded. But, like, yep. that makes me really want to go out to the, the Northeast just to kind of catch some games and, and see what's out there because, I mean, coming from Florida, it's a football state. So yep. everyone's, like, they want to put on pads and then basketball second. And you got natural athletes, so, like, you know, like, they're, they can come out there and they can run, jump, and all that. But to actually have the talent and the skill to go along with that, like, I've never really experienced anything like that. Even Even being in Cali, like, I kind of see it now. Um, but you know, everyone's told me like, yo, you gotta go to, you gotta go to Jersey, New York, like tri-state. I'm like, yeah, all right. But Hey man, if you, if you co-sign it, then I gotta make a trip out there. (laughs) Yeah, man, two, the two regions you gotta check on the East coast, gotta check out the DMV and you gotta check out the tri-state area. There's always some top talent coming out of there. For sure. For sure, man. So you talked a little bit about it. You said, you know, (laughs) it's fine. I like the the fact you said two wouldn't be pros and you're a strength coach. Like how did, how did you actually transition to going into strength coach? I know like, we talked a little bit about it, but like, what was it kind of like? Like, how did you even get into strength and conditioning? I always say I was—I kind of grew up in the gym. Like, mm-hmm. it's so ironic how looking back on my upbringing has led me here. But um, there was one particular day where, like, my mom was driving to driving to the store and drive past this yard sale, and there's this guy selling all his weight room equipment, like dumbbells from five pounds up to eighty pounds, the dumbbell rack, a weight tree that has two and a half pound plates all the way to 45s, a, 
a barbell, an easy curl bar, a bench, like like everything, even the even the rubber like flooring that went with it. Oh, he damn. sold all of that for hundred and fifty dollars. So this is like what come up? <laughs> crazy come up, right? This is like ninety nine two thousand. So I, I forget what the guy's story was, but I think it was something along the lines of like, you know, he just wanted to get rid of it, or it might have been like a health issue, or something, but. My mom was like, listen, like, don't sell this to anybody. I will come right back with my with my husband's truck and like we're gonna take all this equipment from you. And so I was probably four or five years old at the time, but the little one car garage that we had in our town home, like the first home I grew up in, immediately became a weight room. And you know, this is like ninety-nine, two thousand, like the fallacy behind kids shouldn't lift because it'll stunt their growth or they'll get hurt was super prevalent. So my parents mm-hmm. were like Hey, Zay, you can't be in a weight room, but you can watch from the garage steps. And so I would sit on the garage steps and watch my family train like, pretty wow. much every single day. And that was like my first impression of what a weight room was like. And, and this is long before Bluetooth speakers and whatnot. I always had the FM radio that you got to toggle the antenna to get the signal through. And here we are <laughs> in this little like small garage with cinder block walls and hand-me-down weights. And I'm, the things I'm picking up were like, wow, this is a very familial and communal atmosphere. Like, we're empowering one another. We're encouraging one another. But look at the grit. Look at the fortitude. Look at the, look at the desire to get better. Like, my parents in here after a long day of work, you know, running us around to practice and all these activities to cook dinner, do homework, and then Ooh. still find time to lift. And mind you, like, my sister's seven years older than me. So while I'm four, she's 11 and a couple of years removed from high school with a very budding like track and field career mm-hmm. they're thinking like all right we need to start having her train so i'm i'm watching all of this happen at a very very young age and i like still vividly remember the feeling of sitting on the garage steps and watching that every day for like probably a year and a half and i think the second event that got me closer to strength and conditioning only happened two years later where my, my parents are like well now my sister's 13 she's about to go into high school training her is a little outside of our scope so we need to find somebody they ended mm. up finding a trainer by the name of Joe DeFranco, who everybody in the oh, industry shit. knows now. <laughs> but at the time, this is what, 18, almost 19 years ago, Joe DeFranco didn't have his own gym. Like, he was training out of Parisi Speed School. So I'm six years old watching a young Joe DeFranco, like 24, 25 years old, train my mom and my sister. And basically, while I was growing up, watched Joe's career evolve, like, from him going from Parisi to opening up the storage closet, seeing Brian Cushing and Dahani Jones train in person, that kind of imbued me with this desire to be like, man, this this is super cool. Like, these guys are listening to rap music. They're lifting yeah. weights. Like he's his job is he's wearing sweats and a t-shirt. Like this is <laughs> like super dope. And I'll probably say the third thing that led me to strength and conditioning was around like oh five oh six. Remember YouTube became like super popular. Yeah. So now if you got a home computer, you got access to your favorite players. So I would YouTube all my favorite players and try to see if I could find their workouts. I would sit in front <laughs> of the computer. I would write down every exercise I saw. And the same way I would go into the driveway and practice basketball moves, I would go into the weight room and replicate any of the workouts I saw. And through those, mm-hmm. like through that discovery, I found names like Tim Grover, Alvin Meal, Steve Hess, who was with the the Denver Nuggets for a long time, like Bill mm-hmm. Ferran, who's still to this day with the Miami Heat. Yeah, um, family. <laughs> like these are guys that, like, at, you know, as a preteen, I was I was finding out who these guys were, 
and I just felt like, man, there's a science to all of this stuff. And a couple of years later, I, I began training with a skills trainer of my own. Like um, his name was Daryl Smith. And I think Jeff, Jeff Van Gundy gave him the nickname of D train because he was training with St. Patrick High School that had Dexter Strickland, Corey Fisher, Kyrie Irving. And I found his website through all this YouTube searching. And he had this little like message box on there. So I was like, well, what do I got to lose? I'm in eighth grade. Let me just message this guy, see if he'll train me, which he did. And for the next four <laughs> years between eighth grade and my senior year of high school, I was training with him. And I like fell in love with the trainer so much that I wrote down every single workout over those four years. Like, I still have the notebook to this day. So all of those experiences let was happened prior to me even graduating high school from the moment we had a home gym to seeing Joe DeFranco to my own training experience. And then finally the, the last two things that like shaped my experience was one, I didn't get recruited. Like, I yeah. went to a private school, you know, there's, I didn't really know what postgraduates were and you find out the hard way where you're thinking you're going to play this year mm -hmm. and in walks this postgrad from Florida or from Canada <laughs> And they're, they're, they are your same graduating class, but they're two years older than you, 60 pounds heavier than you. Yeah. And they're like six foot four, six foot five. And you're like, well, there goes my, there goes my senior season. Like, I'm, right. I'm about to start. <laughs> so all this training, all this work, and I'm like, well, dang, I, I can't even – and I could try to walk on somewhere. I think I'm athletic enough to walk somewhere. But rather than me, like, feeling as if I got this big chip on my shoulder just to make the team, how about I become somebody – who empowers other athletes to overcome those sticking points athletically mm -hmm. and to empower them to like be the best person that they could be kind of have more confidence. All like all of that was looked at all the trainers that I was around and said, I want to do that. And it just so happened that like around this same time, like we had moved into a new house. And so our, our garage gym was no more. Now the gym was in the, is in the basement. And my mom was like, you know what? I got a, got a couple extra dollars. I want to redesign the gym. I'm going to let you design the gym. So I'm 18 years old designing my first gym. So all of these experiences, <laughs> like, I, I, that's why I said, like, I, I kind of got raised in a gym. Like, by the time I was 18, I'd seen Joe DeFranco. I'd seen top-notch basketball trainers. And I got to design my own weight room before I even went to college. So once I got to college, it was, you know, it was a no-brainer for me to switch my major to kinesiology. I started out as a bioengineer, thinking that I was going to specialize in biomechanics and have biomechanics kind of be the intersection between sports and science. Um, but it didn't necessarily work out with the engineering path. So I switched my major. And from that point on, I started volunteering and the rest is kind of rest is kind of history. Like I basically leveraged those opportunities to get me where I am now. But yeah, my upbringing was a very long journey in strength and conditioning. So I started <laughs> when I was very, very young. No, nah, man, like that's to me, like that's, that's amazing that you knew, like, even, like, you know, at a young age, like, having that experience, because, I mean, one, like, you know, I think some parents, like, they'll, they'll maybe, like, introduce their kids to the weight room or maybe training, but it won't really be, it'll be, like, a passing comment, like, oh, yeah, like, if you lift weights, blah, 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 but when you actually see your parents and you see your family, like, working, training, and, you know, trying to, trying to achieve, you know, their own goals, like, to me, like, I think that's, like, subconsciously, that does something for you, right? Like, it's, oh, like, yeah. it's, it sets, like, it sets up this like long-term like feeling towards training, like not necessarily just something that you have to do, but something that you love and, you know, something that you're a part of, like with your family. So like, to me, like, that's crazy. Cause I didn't even, I don't even think I got introduced to the weight room probably till like I was in high school. Like I, you know, I would hear about like, Oh yeah, lifting weights. Cool. 
But I didn't really get into a, a real weight room until I was like 14. So you already had like those seven years pretty much like ahead right. of the curve. And then um and then you designing your own weight room. That's crazy. Like I've never heard anybody like being like, you know, 18 years old, like trying to figure out like, okay, like here's where I would put this. Like here's, you know, the issue I would have with this. Like I've never really heard of that, you know, prior to like interns. Well, they have to do it because like it's part of their internship to design like a, a, a weight room or something like that or a setup. Like, right. It's almost like, to be honest, man, it sounds like you were pretty much destined to be a strength coach from the time maybe, you were young. <laughs> maybe, man. I, it, you know, the weight room, I always look back at it now and be like, man, I could have designed something way better. But the experience mm. of like going through, hey, you know, this is what we need. Like, why don't we have a shelf to put med balls on? Or why don't we mm. have these, you know, hooks on the wall to put resistance bands and mini bands? Like little things that I was thinking at like 18, 19 years old that I had no clue where it was going to lead me, but I was just very fortunate to have progressive parents. Like I remember my father would I randomly one day before AAU practice was like, Hey, we're going to lift for 30 minutes before practice and to see what, like what'll happen. Mm-hmm. But he didn't necessarily know like potentiation effects or anything like that. He wasn't a strength coach. He intuitively was like, this is what we're going to do. And right. I remember I played, incredible that AAU season just because of the fact that like I was getting micro dose strength exposures mm-hmm. and yeah I mean all these things add up to the point where now like at, at 24 all these experiences as I look back and as I'm talking talking about it like it really makes sense as to how I ended up where I'm at just because of all this stuff right no man that's like you said you even said like it's it was microdose, right so it was like it was like accumulation opportunities, what we call it like in um, like uh, applied functional science, where it's like little things always add up, you know, to long term changes. So that's that's awesome, man. So one thing I did want to ask you is like, you know, your time with the Mystics and even your time with um, with uh, the NBA Academy at Senegal. Like, what are some things you learned during your time with those two organizations that you felt like you haven't really learned or you haven't gotten anywhere else? Man, I uh, picked up so many gems at those two experiences. I think with the NBA Academy first, was I saw firsthand how the game was being globalized. Like, right. It was the inaugural year of the NBA Academy. Um, and you're learning about so many important figures in the NBA outside of, you know, the common names of Adam Silver and Mark Tatum. Like you're right. learning about all these people globally who see where basketball can take us. Um, right. And the player development staff that was at the academy was phenomenal. And, you know, I look at the, the Washington Mystics and the NBA Academy, the, the single most important thing that I got from them was how to see the game. Like, I played basketball all my life, but all of a sudden now we're, like, really breaking down film and we're studying movement patterns and we're teaching players how to make decisions at a very, uh, at a very elite level. And right. what that did for me as a strength coach was – provide me with more value like you can't be the guy that's just in the weight room you have to have the ability to speak the language of sports coaches to be able to you know analyze and decode some of the movements that we see in sport and understand how can what is our role in making that a little bit better you know Mm -hmm. the washington mystics especially like they were for first of all it's a class a organization and it shows why and the fact that, that they won the WNBA championship this past year but Mm-hmm. Their ability to assess player movements and also assess movements in the weight room and compare notes like, hey, this player struggles with 
you know, she shoots with really good mechanics from 12 to 15 feet, but from 15 to 18 feet and beyond, like something is going wrong with her mechanics and they would check in with the strength coaches and we would see how what we would see on film would correlate with what we might see in the weight room. Um, and ultimately the second thing I got from the mystics was, um, how to be a Swiss army knife. Like, mm -hmm. you, and I mentioned it before, you can't just be the weight room guy, but that internship, I was, I was doing assessments. I was in the weight room. I was a practice dummy, like playing def dummy defense or playing pickup or rebounding or getting water during, during timeouts. Like, you have to, like when young coaches ask, how can I stand out? You have to be willing to do whatever at any point in time so right. that you could pr provide value with more than that's just on your resume. You can't just go to places and say, hey, I'm, I'm just a strength guy. Because if, right. if I had that mentality with the Mystics, I wouldn't have had, had the opportunity to develop relationships and learn in such a multifaceted way that I did from those experts that are there. Nah, no doubt, man. I love the fact that you even said that, you know, be, you have to be more valuable than just being in the in the weight room, because that's one thing I, I feel like every strength coach should learn, because, you know, oftentimes, like, I'll go to, like, conferences and things like that, and they'll say, like, hey, look, we're just, you know, we're just the strength staff, like, we're support staff, like, we just make sure we, we do what we need to do, you know, in the weight room, but I always look at that, like, no, like, I feel like, you know, if we are st support staff, then we should be supporting them in any way we can. So not necessarily just in the weight room, but also, you know, making sure like little things, making sure if you're in college athletics, make sure like athletes get to class, like they're stud like they're studying, like, you know, making sure like, Hey, like, how are you feeling? Are you sleeping? You know, things like that, that we may not really consider like as far as like a, a KPI, you know, like there's other right. things that go into, you know, overall holistic, you know, overall health. And I just feel like that we miss that sometimes as strength coaches. And like, sometimes I miss it. Because the athlete wants to jump three inches higher. Like, I'm focused on that. But then, like, there's other things that involve with that. Like, not just the stress of the weight room. Like, there's an accumulation of stress all throughout their entire, their entire day and entire life. So, I always try to pride myself in making sure, like, the athlete can communicate with me about anything. Like, however small it is. Like, even if it's just about, man, I got a flat tire today. Well, tell me about it. Like, you know, what went on today, man? What else happened? Did you have a test today? Like, tell me about your family. Like, getting to know them. And then having the open line of communication. And then that's when, the, to me, that's when the training, that's when you'll get the most out of it. Because, oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. You'll, get, you'll get the buy-in from the athlete. Um, but the fact that, you know, you even said that, like, yo, you have to be more valuable than just someone who can count sets and reps and then input right. some numbers in an Excel sheet. So I love the fact that you said that, man. Um, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, like, I wanted to ask you, is like you talked about um, the way they assess players is, like, none other with the Mystics. So obviously, like, you know, if you can't give out some of the information, like I understand, but um, what are uh, what were some like some of the assessments that they, they kind of utilize if you can can give that some of the information? Yeah, so my knowledge on their assessments is a little bit limited because I wasn't mm -hmm. with them during the the pre draft process for like okay. how they s select players. But one of the things that they continually did throughout the season was positional breakdowns, mm -hmm. and. And I don't know if every WNBA team does this or every NBA team for that matter, but on practice days, they would have skill development sessions and like one group would be on the court and the other group would be in the weight room for 30 mm -hmm. minutes and then they would flip. And there were plenty of times where I got to see some of those on-court sessions and those sessions would always get recorded for the most part. And you would see them go through different drills 
different scenarios, and then maybe after, like after we would do our, uh, like our skill group and our weight room group, uh, and then we'd have come together for practice, and then after practice, you would see players get pulled aside with some of the assistant coaches or player development coaches, and they're breaking down what they saw in practice. They say, look at look at your ability to fight over the screen, or look at what happens when, you know, look at your movement when you're. Uh, when somebody just went back door and they're assessing like, how can you be quicker? How can you be better in that standpoint? Look at your mm. stance, look at your position. We even did that in team film sessions when we're studying and we're, you know, if a certain coach has a scout, let's say if they're scouting the Los Angeles Sparks and they're scouting, uh, you know, the Agumake sisters and, and Candace Parker, and they're trying to figure out how to play them. They're breaking down, all right, here's what happens when they come off this screen or here's what happens when they run this flare or whatever. And basically using those situational components to look at how is it that we can put ourselves in position to make sure that we are like we're optimal. We're playing defense optimally or we're running our Mm. sets optimally. And sometimes what that would lead to for me, like the coaches and the players would be looking at this from a basketball standpoint, like what type of sets they were wearing. But I would be looking at this from a movement standpoint, like, does this player have any energy leaks when they're running this mm. when they're running this particular thing? Or if the goal is to get the ball into the post, but their post is struggling to get positioned, is that because of an energy leak? Is that because of a movement inefficiency? Or is mm. that because we're not running something properly? And mm. so these were all internal conversations I would have, but we would have the uh, we would have the space to communicate with these coaches and say, hey, what do you see? Um, with this particular movement or this particular player. And so every day was an assessment. Every single day where all right, our point guard is struggling to get over the screen or the player rejects the screen and for some reason, you know, our recovery isn't good. So mm-hmm. they would come to our performance staff and say, is this player, do you see the same thing when they move laterally in the weight room? Mm-hmm. Um, does this player struggle to have like – to be an efficient runner running down the court or like why is it that this player is getting tired so fast so they would always have these collaborative discussions based off what we would see on film what we would see in the weight room and then what we saw in practice and that was that daily assessment for figuring out what what is it that we need to focus on based off injury history and movement performance yeah no no doubt man i love i love that too because i feel like you know most of the time like when it comes to that like i i think coaches will kind of look at that and say like is that too specific right like sports specific because you're looking at like okay coming off these screens like well how can we mimic mimic that in the weight room or how can we mimic that in training to improve it and like you said you're looking at energy leaks and and like even just like movement efficiency and i think that's important that you know we as as performance trainers and coaches like we need to understand like okay like how can we like you said how can we make an impact that's maybe not necessarily going to be like skills training but how can we make sure they're moving as well as they possibly can on the court. And, um, you know, sometimes that does have to get specific. So one thing I actually wanted to ask you, like, since you're just talking about that is kind of just that, like, there's so much controversy, you know, at least when I talk to coaches about how specific can you get in training, you know, like they, cause like I said, like coaches will look at themselves and say, Oh, well, I'm the weight room guy. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not going to look at this. And like, even when it comes to agility training, like I've had coaches that talk to me and we'll get into this, They'll talk to me and say, hey, what should I do? And, you know, I'll tell them, hey, like, this is my opinion. And they'll say, well, I just have them run track, right? Like, I have them play another sport to improve their agility. And I'm like, well, not necessarily because, you know, how, how is that going to be applied to this specific sport that they're playing? 
And so, like, one thing I want to ask you is how do you, like, what is your take on, like, quote-unquote sports-specific training? Like, can we get too specific? And, you know, how, like, what is your take on that? Well, I think naturally, like, my take, my initial take on it is the only, like, the sport is the only specific thing that you could do that's Mm -hmm. sport-specific. Like, we can never recreate the amount of information, the amount of context that a sport will provide to that athlete in Mm -hmm. a training session. Like, we can get as close as we can. We can limit that gray area, if you will, by doing mm-hmm. like a lot of perceptual, cognitive type of drills. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if you want somebody to get better at playing basketball, they got to play basketball. Mm-hmm. If you want them to get better at you know, making reads off a of pick and roll, they've got to be in situations where they have to make reads off a of pick and roll. Um, and with that perspective, I look at everything I do as general. Like It's just general physical preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, but within that, like if we look at uh, like Bonderchuk's pyramid of where mm-hmm. GPP is, where SPP1 and SPP2 are, um, I think sometimes a lot of coaches struggle to look at the pyramid with only one viewpoint. Like mm. a lot of, when we look at pyramids, everybody just sees, all right, we have to do everything in the foundational bottom level first, and then we can work our way up the pyramids. Whereas I like to look at, and this was taught to me by uh, John O'Neill at Cressy Sports Performance when I interned mm-hmm. there, was what if you took that pyramid and draw and drew lines through it or what if you took that pyramid and turned it sideways how would Mm -hmm. you then see what's at the top and what's at the bottom and if you Mm. drew lines through that pyramid you would have slices of the pyramid that incorporate both the base level and the and the secondary as well as tertiary level of the pyramid so is there is there a section in our macro cycle or micro cycle where a lot of what we can do is general GPP work, but there's also a mix of SPP1 or SPP2, depending on the sport calendar. Like, are we close to their competitive season or are we deep into off season? So I look at that as a way to, this is how we can progress them or get them closer to being, you know, ready for the demands that their sport will provide them by looking at the pyramid differently and saying, yeah, we can do a lot of these general things, but every once in a while we can have increased the graded exposure to decision-making to cognitive work, to adding more um, um, chioplexity, which is kind of a mix between chaos and complexity. Mm-hmm. How can we add that into the session intermittently so that as they get closer to the season, things tend to look more specific, but in the mm-hmm. grand scheme of things, nothing will be as specific as the sport. Right, absolutely. So it's like, and I, I love the fact that you even said, like, if you turned the pyramid, you know, on its side or even like, just changing, changing the way you look at it, like you can absolutely start sprinkling in some more, you know, specific uh, drills, like you said. But I just think a lot of times when it comes to coaching, they just, you know, obviously, like you said, like you can't get any more specific than sports. So even basketball, you can't get more specific than playing basketball. But it's like, how can we, I'm always asking myself, um, how can I get as close to replicating what we can do in the sport? And obviously they'll never be the same, but how can we get as close as we can um, to prepare them for that kind of those situations so you touched on that a little bit like great segue appreciate that but um you know you had some great posts on agility training and even like i just said like i've had coaches kind of talk to me about it so um you know i kind of wanted to just kind of go based off in your your inside your opinions you know what exactly is agility i think there's some there's there's some definitions in in there but there's also some practical definitions in my opinion so what is agility and um 
what are some things that can affect the ability of an athlete to change direction um, in the sport, in a closed environment, and an open environment? Yeah, um, so simply put, agility is the ability to change direction in response to a stimulus. Mm-hmm. And that stimulus could be the bounce of a ball. It could be the direction that an opponent is moving. You know, there's, there's all this stimuli within the context of the game. Like, athletes have to respond to different stimuli in a dynamic environment. Like, there's, mm-hmm. there's never a linear progression to how decisions get made in any type of game. You know, there's what the information that happened to play before, uh, the psychological stressors that go into it. So there's different stimuli that go into what type of decision you're going to make from a from a uh, change of direction standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and agility is comprised of two different components. You have your change of direction speed mm-hmm. and your per- perceptual cognitive speed. Okay. Now, change of direction speed is where most I'd probably say this is like very anecdotal and arbitrary, but probably Mm -hmm. like 90% of the coaches live on just Mm -hmm. that side of the the pyramid for agility training and change of direction speed. If we look at common agility tests, the T test, the five zero five, the five ten five, the, you know, any, any of these like canned drills that you see at an NFL combine Mm -hmm. or the NBA combine, there's no stimuli to that. It's just, here, you, all you have to do, the task is to follow these predetermined routes right. and do that to the best of your ability. Um, right. And, and that doesn't within, happen in sport. <laughs> no, it never happens in sport. If you look at football, right, if, if a receiver catches the ball and there's no defender in sight, is the, is the receiver going to change direction? Is he going to plant <laughs> and turn? Like, no, he, the task is just to get the task done. The task is mm-hmm. to score. But if the receiver catches the ball and there's a defender – you know, right in front of him or a defender coming on an angle, he's going to change his movement pattern. So the stimulus is based off, you know, how hard did the ball get thrown? Is it behind me? Is it in front of me? Is it, uh, you know, is it way above my head? Okay. And then the next stimulus is where's the defender coming from? How many defenders are there? How much space do I have to move? That'll all determine what movement pattern the athlete will inherently call upon. So it's, it's very complex and very chaotic, and they have to be able to self-organize around that task at any given moment. So we have to provide them with the ability to have more of a, a movement solutions toolbox that they can like pick whatever movement strategy is most optimal at that point in time. Like A lot of coaches spend so much time getting quote-unquote perfect reps before mm-hmm. they do anything else. And if you, if you watch sports and some of the positions that people will be in under high speeds and high loads – these positions are far from optimal. If you look at like the joint angles that these guys are in, like if you watch sports in slow motion, you're going to be standing there scratching your head. Like, how are these guys not getting hurt? So like mm-hmm. they don't need to be in perfect positions. They just need to be in a position where they can make a decision. Now mm-hmm. back to like what governs change of direction ability, that change of direction speed side incorporates linear sprinting. So in order to change direction, you have to go in one direction first. And mm-hmm. typically you, you have to sprint. So we need to build sprinting patterns. So what are your sprinting mechanics? What is your stride placement or your stride length, your foot placement? Uh, What are your anthropometrics? So this is what's happening. Like as soon as you get an athlete, what are you assessing? Are Mm -hmm. there any, you know, joint dysfunctions? Are there like muscular dysfunctions, anything? Um, So we look at anthropometrics. We look at their movement strategy. We look at foot placement, stride length. 
and then we assess their ability of strength. So looking at the force velocity curve and breaking down like their level of eccentric strength, isometric strength, and concentric strength. Eccentric strength is like if we look at basketball, the ability to slam on the brakes. So a guy like James Harden, Luka Doncic have like amazing, like almost off the chart ability to produce eccentric force. Right. But that isometric ability is can you maintain a position without necessarily leaking a whole bunch of energy? Right. Owning so, that position. Uh, yes. Owning that position and that concentric force. Can you explode out of it? Can you be propulsive? And in your assessments, you need to be able to tell what does this athlete need? What's the most low hanging fruit that could allow them to improve? Do they need to be quicker off the ground or do they need to improve more force output? Do I need to give them more of an emphasis on eccentric strength or concentric strength? Or do Mm -hmm. I need more of an emphasis on isometric strength? And for most young athletes, typically if we just get them stronger, everything else improves. And so that's why most coaches tend to live on that side of the side of the spectrum with agility mm-hmm. but the opposite side that people don't really get a whole lot of exposure in is the ability to make decisions so right. perceptual cognitive speed incorporates five different things you have visual scanning reaction time anticipation um knowledge of the situation and um oh man there's one more it might come to me but uh yeah visual scanning knowledge of the situation reaction time anticipation and the ability to like just self-organize and, and respond really, really fast. Um, and these are all things I got from, uh, there's an article written by Sophia Nymphius in this mm-hmm. book called uh, like High Performance Training for Sports. Um, so if, if anybody wants to fact check me on that or, or find the source of where that <laughs> came from, it came straight from that article. But this is the ability to include different stimuli. So now we take these same, these same skills, whether it be a T-step or a drop step or a lateral push or crossover run. And now let's put some context behind it. Can you mm. perform that same task with a different starting position or a different, um, a different start to the drill? So whether I clap or whether I point, or whether I give you eye, eye contact to start, that's incorporating different stimuli. Or if I mm. put a defender in front of you, can you still have the ability to call upon that movement pattern we just trained with increased demand of, of, of uh, complexity within mm-hmm. that drill. So that's what I look at when like agility has to be holistically approached and it's very right. multifaceted and it needs to be approached in a very strategic way. Whether that way is a linear progression model or lo- non-linear progression model, whatever works for that coach in that specific environment with that athlete, they need to be able to work both sides of the spectrum. So get them stronger, expose them to positions, but also expose them to complexity and chaos so that they can make decisions faster. And that's what will really translate to, to sports because they have to make decisions in the game as well. Right. And it's, it's funny because like even talking about this, like we were texting back and forth, you know, I was telling it's like I explained this to my athletes, but I never, you know, I never articulated it the way that you have. But um, I think that's, that's that's always been what's really kind of missing when it comes to like speed and agility training is because that decision making isn't there. Like like you said, we'll have them run through. It's like to me, like it's almost like empty reps. Like, yeah, sure. They can move well in those um, in those cuts and these movements. But if they get in the game and you know, there's a bunch of chaos going like it's a you know, more dynamic environment. Like they're not going to be able to, they're not going to be able to to be the same athlete that they were in training because there's exactly. so many, there's so many different factors they have to take into consideration 
by the time they're able to process what's going on is like it's not subconscious anymore it's not instinct so now right. they have to they have to consciously think about you know where am i going to go oh he's right here how am i going to react how, what decision i have to make and any any type of any like any second that's wasted in in sport it's it's going to be it's game over especially at the higher level so um i think that's amazing it's funny because i was you know even you explaining it is like i had these uh which you by the way like you actually uh educated me on a couple things so i appreciate that but uh <laughs> just like even, no problem so even like when i was working with my athletes um i would always have those different stimuli so i would use like more so pointing and then sometimes i would do like numbers so um they would have like whatever drill it is like i would go like odd or even like whatever number i give them like hey if you go if i go even you have to do this if i go odd you have to do this so like they start off with the sprint or whatever the case may be and then i'll give them that stimulus and so, like you said, I think it's, like, layering that complexity. I actually stole that from, like, a softball coach. I'm not mistaken. But um, I used to, I love doing those types of drills. But, like, the way you just explain, you know, the deeper reasoning why behind it, it's, like, now that gives me more more of a why behind it. Like, I always had my why, but now it's, like, okay, damn, this is actually what goes into it. So this is why I should keep continuing to apply it. So, um, nah, man, that's huge. Like, I appreciate you for, for dropping that knowledge. Oh, no problem, man. I mean, I think um... – so to put it like in layman's terms for athletes, I think you got a lot of athletes that listen to this show. Mm-hmm. And if I play basketball, if I go out in my driveway and do a hundred form shots or free throws with in, in a quiet driveway and you mm-hmm. know middle of the suburbs where there's no noise, I can make ninety out of a hundred. But mm-hmm. will I have? Will I resort to that same form if we're down one with two seconds on the clock? Or if there's a bunch of fans screaming at me or, you know, all of a sudden I'm trying to (laughs) shoot with a defender in my face. So we have to there's there's an importance. There's a there's merit behind block practice and Mm -hmm. just retaining a skill. But there is merit and complexity as well. And there's a couple studies that came out like if uh, I kind of get a little nerdy with this stuff a little bit. Um, (laughs) But if we look at like like brain plasticity, right? Like I, I went down this hole where I was coaching a whole bunch of athletes and I was like, man, you know, sometimes these guys aren't engaged or d- these reps seem like these are empty reps when we're doing some of the, our agility stuff or our warm up stuff. Like, are they learning? Like, how is it? What can I do to engage them in a very learning way? And mm. this deep dive kind of got me down this rabbit hole of what brain plasticity was and brain plasticity. All it means is like, your brain's ability to adapt to new information, whether that's mm. physical, psychological, whatever, like this is, is basically a software update for your brain of learning about new things. So the same way an iPhone will have a software update, your brain will have a software update if it says, oh, this is something that we need to learn. Now, a lot of coaches do or we make the mistake is sometimes we will over describe something or over cue mm. something. But if we if we always provide the answers and if we always pr- provide the description, the athletes might not learn. It's, you know, why would I study for a test if the teacher says oh, I can have my notes out and I can use Quizlet? Like, what was the point? You know? <laughs> but if if we put them in an environment where they are forced to explore and learn, then neurologically their brain will improve. There were some studies. Um, that just came out or actually was a couple of years ago. It was a 2015 study on uh, brain plasticity, like white, white matter brain plasticity in elite level basketball players and athlete, like elite level basketball players had more 
like white matter in their cerebellum because mm-hmm. they were forced to learn new skills within task constraints. So mm-hmm. it was a lot of decision-making, a lot of like perceptual cognitive stuff. That perceptual cognitive side of agility is where learning tends to happen more, more often than not. So if we put, okay. if we use a, a constraints-led approach, like kind of like what you were doing, you might point a certain direction or we have different ways to initiate a drill or mm-hmm. tasks that happen within a drill. So it might be a simple cutting drill. All right, sprint at me and first round you cut right, but second round you you cut based off of where I, I lean. So if I juke mm-hmm. at you, you got to go opposite. So if we incorporate different tasks, different constraints, different approaches to getting these guys to learn, neurologically their brains will improve, but performance-wise, they'll see those adaptations there as well. That's amazing, man. And it's, it's funny because, like, even when you, we talk about, like, over-cueing and over-describing, it's like you said, like, they're, <laughs> they're not going to learn. If I, if I got the answer to the test, like, I'm, I'm not cracking that book open until the day of the test. Right. Like, you know, so, um, and I, I love the fact that you said, like, even um, the ability to learn, like, that's huge. I was talking to Gannon Baker about that, and um, he even incorporates that even in the skills training. Like, not, as I'm thinking about it now, it's because he believes, and not to get off topic about it, but he believes that even when it comes to skills training, the same exact approach, he didn't articulate it that, uh, that way. Um, but he says, like, there's no decision making in skills training nowadays. Like, you just ha- like, have guys dribbling in place a hundred times and then making a move on a cone. But you put a live defender in them where they had to make decisions based off of a read and they can't do it because they didn't do it in training. So it's like it's not going to replicate itself in the game. And so it's pretty, in my opinion, like it goes back into like when it comes to training, like you have to be able to make decisions. And like you said, like changing the environment like that matters okay like we go this way okay this time we're gonna do this and then you add something more chaotic to it more complex to it as as you go on like however you progress it and that's when they're gonna start learning so it's funny because as i think about it i'm like okay you can apply this concept in different different environments whether you're skills training whether you're uh performance training like it's all the same concept it's the same idea it's just now you can manipulate it differently to for whatever individual you're working with and whatever environment you're in Exactly. Like every, every environment is dynamic. So this, Mm -hmm. this dynamic systems theory approach to how we improve athletics can be applied on court could be applied in the weight room. Like I'll give you a good example. When I was with the mystics and some of the assistant coaches would say, Hey Zay, you're going to play dummy defense, you know, while we Mm -hmm. do some of our like one-on-one work. So rep number one, I want you to get over the screen. Rep number two, go under the screen. Rep number three, you do whatever you want. And mm-hmm. so we would give these players, you know, exposure to, all right, just get some reps, get, get it to feel good. If you know what is happening, like if there's a predictable defensive action, here's what you do. But then mm-hmm. we, we in, incorporate some chaos into that. All right, say so you're going to fight the screen really hard and you're, you're, you're going to go under or you're, you're, you want it to be as unpredictable as possible because you have no idea what the defender will do in the game. And that's where, like, the difference between block practice and randomized practice come into, come into uh, to play. If you want to really hone the skill, yeah, of course, get a bunch of reps first. Mm-hmm. But then get reps within different contexts. So this, this type of approach is definitely something that should be used on court with a lot of skilled trainers. Yeah, for sure, man. Like, it's, and it's so funny, though. Like, it's like you get this new information from different uh from different people different individuals and it's like dots i always say it's like i get a bunch of dots and then once i hear maybe one thing from one other person they start they all start connecting at the same time and so that's why like i believe in my opinion like that's why a trainer like gannon 
Like, there's other things he does, but I think that's why he's so successful. Like, one of the best in the world at what he does is because he understands, you know, the importance of being able to make decisions and being able to thrive in chaotic environments on the court. And it's the same thing with you, why you've been with the Mystics, why you've been literally in Africa as a first intern with, you know, the <laughs> NBA. Like, you understand the importance of, okay, yes, we can – improve their strength they can improve you know their physical capabilities but there's also a neurological aspect that goes into that and so you understand that and so that's why you've been where you've been so that's i mean hey i'm getting free game man everyone everyone listening is gonna get free game but i'm getting a bunch of stuff too i'm gonna go back hey, and listen to this. <laughs> no problem man i think at the end of the day and this, this is the last thing i'll say on this topic um is when we're strength and conditioning coaches or performance coaches what really matters like mm-hmm. so many coaches spend so much time chasing one rep maxes or right. oh they they've they came to me doing trap bar deadlift at one thirty five now they're at three fifteen like do these sports coaches can they speak the same language as strength coaches do they understand how this makes them better like they're not putting the five strongest athletes on the on the court right. they're putting the five best players on the court so ultimately we want players to make winning plays we want them to make to be better decision makers like how do we guide them to improve skill acquisition we right. have to incorporate like especially when we're, when we're doing like movement stuff agility stuff that the whole impetus needs to be is this making them a better player like when they get to the court is this making them better and that's why right. i love the the dual model of agility look at strength but also look at perceptual cognitive agility as well facts man no i appreciate i appreciate all that that game you just gave us because uh i think that's that's a missing they're not a missing key but i think it's something that it's one of those things that people don't necessarily pay too much attention to and it's like you said like usually what i've noticed is that the people that are the most successful in the weight room most of the time really aren't the ones that are getting on the, the pt they're not the ones getting all the burn it's mm-hmm. like yeah yeah sure man like, yeah you bench 500 that's cool but then you're you look good in that t-shirt on the bench dog so it's like right you know what are we really doing like i i love the, I love the fact that you even brought that up but uh, but yeah, man. Well, so we can talk about that all day. So let's uh, let's segue away from that, though. Um, my big thing that I wanted to touch on is that you know a couple of weeks ago, I actually read an article which I found on Facebook, but I put it on IG, and um, you actually responded to this. But um, I put an article that said you know black men don't necessarily um, speak about their mental their mental health. Uh, for whatever whatever reasons, like we understand, but we're gonna get into it. Um, and so I actually just I put that article on IG, and then I asked, like, hey, you know, black men, have you ever gone through anything mentally, like depression, depression, anxiety, things like that? And um, you know, he would talk to me about it. Like, I'd love to have a conversation. And you know, I got a great response from there. I got multiple people that responded to it, which I didn't expect, and just talked about like the things they went through that they never told anyone before. And um, I think this goes along with performance is that we always talk about, you know, these KPIs like, okay, like we're getting faster, you're getting stronger, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, what happens holistically is, you know, physically and mentally and spiritually. So one thing I definitely want to talk to you about, um, and we had a little bit of a conversation about it is, you know, mental health, especially when it comes to black men, black athletes, black coaches, um, there's a lot of stuff that happens with us in the, our own community that we don't necessarily really talk about. Um, I know with myself, a couple of years ago, um, I was going through some stuff, 2017, I believe it was. And that whole year, it was just like, basically, like, I was, like, screwed up. Um, just, like, kind of depressed as far as, like, my career is going. I didn't necessarily have 
a job lined up. Uh, I was kind of like just kind of working jobs to make ends meet. And um, it took a lot. It took a heavy toll. But even before that, you know, I think there was a lot that led up to it in terms of like bottling up my emotions and things like that. And um, it really wasn't until I met my girlfriend now where she is teaching me, it's still a process, but teaching me how to get this stuff out of me. Um, because I think like as, as men in general and then even black men, we're taught to bottle all this stuff up and, and not talk to anyone about it. So um, I'd love to definitely, you know, hear kind of some of the stuff that maybe you've, uh, you've kind of been through and some stuff you want to talk about as far as it comes to like mental health and, and things that you've uh, learned along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, we, we spent some time talking about this offline before we started recording, but the like how you get conditioned to deal with emotions within the black community, especially mm -hmm. as as a young male where you're taught like, you know, you got to be a man. You can't cry or if you play football, there's no crying in football or, yeah. you know, if you if you want to be a big boy, you, you can't like be soft. You can't show those emotions. And what tends to happen is like what a lot of these parents thought was happening was that they were making us tougher and making us more resilient. Mm. Really, the, the only skill that we got from that was compartmentalization mm. and suppressing of emotions. Like, I just got really, really good at making sure I never told anybody I was sad or upset or needed to vent or needed an outlet to, right. to cry or, or just emote. Like, you got conditioned to only deal with certain emotions and certain emotions were... Accept, uh, acceptable while others were looked down upon. Um, right. And so what that ends up leading to is when you suppress your emotions for so long, you'll get to a point where like anything that triggers you could lead to an outburst or lead to a breakdown. Um, you know, so much so that like we're conditioned to not even recognize symptoms of depression, at least like for me when I was growing up. Yeah. I probably first recognized I had symptoms of depression when I was like 12, 13 years old, but I, there were never conversations about depression. So I, I didn't have the wherewithal or the range to, to say, oh, I need to talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. I just didn't say anything. I just buried it and was like, all right, well, I need to focus on something else. And so the, these experiences that I went through, like I've, I've gone through bouts of depression at multiple stages of my life and have had panic attacks and dealt with a lot of anxiety and dealing with some people who, you know, like being, being a man sometimes is associated with like hyper-masculine traits and sometimes yep. being apathetic and having a lack of compassion is almost praised. Like if you're tough and like you, you're cold hearted and nothing really gets to you and you're thick skinned, that mm -hmm. kind of gets applauded. When in reality, those actions can sometimes be very inconsiderate or apathetic to those who need an outlet to, to speak and emote about what they're going through. Um, so I went through all these things and was realizing like, man, it's time for me to like really try to take my mental health and my healing to like a, like make it a major priority rather than just compartmentalizing it all the time. So, uh, we talked about it last time. I want to say maybe a week or two ago, we had our yeah. conversation about mental health, about, like, what are some strategies we can do? Um, how can we kind of take this into our own hands and, and normalize this behavior? Like, our parents were raised by people who didn't emote, and that got passed down to us. Mm -hmm. But now, like, we need to take it into consideration. Like, it's okay to have conversations with your friends, whether it's right. on, a, on a podcast like this or whether it's just in your house or at a bar. Like, it's okay to ask people how they're doing and 
how can I support you? What, what do you need from me to make sure that you could be clear mentally, you know, and not everybody needs therapy, but it's definitely an outlet. And I think it's just important to provide people with the opportunity to know that you can heal. Like you don't, nothing needs to be completely wrong with you for you to get help. Nothing needs to be like, you don't need to be in a bad place in your life for you to go talk to somebody. Maybe it's just the ability to like understand who you are a little bit more and be free from some of the, um, like some of the things, some of the pressures that the world would just naturally put on you or some of the pressures that you put on yourself. And so that's where I'm at right now with my journey, like mm-hmm. unpacking and unlearning a lot of the things I, I was conditioned to know when I was growing up mm-hmm. and telling myself that it is perfectly okay to have outlets in which I can express everything that I want to express and develop more as a person. I think I'm like, I find this to be really important because I'm a believer that personal development should always precede professional development. And in order for me to show up at my job or show up in my relationship, show up with my family as the best person that I could be, I need to take care of myself first. And sometimes like, especially a strength coach is like, Oh, we're the support staff where, you know, like this isn't about you. You got to take care of the athletes. This and the third. And I agree with that. Like, the athletes are the ones who are playing the sport. You got to take care of them. But if we, if we get bogged down by that mentality too much to say, like, I always have to put other people in front of me, you're eventually going to be pouring from an empty cup. If you never take the time to center yourself throughout the day and keep yourself grounded with, I don't care what type of outlet you use, whether it's therapy or journaling or hiking, whatever, but you need to take time and make sure that you are developing uh, just a healthier relationship with with your inner self and figuring out how you could leverage that to to be better and and to normalize some of these like mental health stigmas especially within the black community yeah no no doubt man i love the fact that you said like even when it comes to strength and conditioning like we're always saying like oh it's about the athletes like and it's so like it's just like an ingrained like type of type of thinking like it's almost to the point where it's like a culture which i understand like we want to have like that kind of selfless mentality where we're helping others but like you said if we're not right like i forgot what i forgot what song it was but it was like you can't win unless you write from within or something like that i can't remember the exact quote but i mean we can't help others like if we're not right within ourselves and and i love the fact that you even talked about kind of like your own you know your own journey because that's something that i'm big on is like yo tell our own stories like i think it needs to be normalized like you said to whereas like, we talk about it you know from ourselves like hey like this is what i went through and so someone who's listening, you know, whether it be a hundred people or whether it be one person that takes from it, like, okay, maybe I should talk about this with someone Not necessarily like you have to talk to, like you said, a therapist, or maybe it's just someone that's close to you, but at least acknowledging it and being aware of it is a first step because if we're going to be in denial about it, like we're not going to necessarily get anywhere. Like, Oh, black people don't go through things. Like that's not something we do. It's like, no, we're human beings first and foremost. So we're going to have these thoughts. We're going to have these feelings. And it's okay to express them. And I especially think when it comes to men, this is my own personal opinion, so this is not scientific fact. But, like, I've noticed, like, the women in my life, they're they're more open to expressing how they feel. Uh, just because it's, it's, I don't know if that's more so, like, it's just more socially accepted, but women are easily able to express how they feel and things like that. So you won't have as many women who necessarily, like, will seek out therapy as men will just because like they're able to 
express those emotions and get everything off their chest. And to the point where it's socially acceptable for a woman to cry, but not a man, like you said. So I think it's because of that, because of society, like naturally women are going to feel more mentally, like as far as like just mentally like aware of like where they are and, and you know, their emotions, things like that versus men, because we're just taught we got to bottle this up, like you said, hyper masculine, hyper masculinity and things like that. Um, but I just know from my own experience, like in 2017, which I kind of touched on, like it felt like literally like a breakdown, like that whole year, just like a mental breakdown of everything that had come before it, where it was like, I wasn't, I wasn't really talking to my friends. I wasn't talking to my family. And, um, even to this day, I never really talked about it. And like, even talking about it now, it's like, it's kind of like, obviously it's uncomfortable, but uh, I think it's important because I think people need to learn from this. Like, be aware, like, okay, something happened, like, something, I don't know exactly what, but something's going on. That way, at the very least, like, you understand, okay, let me go talk to someone about this, and then you can take those steps. But, um, but I just think in the black community, it's just so shunned to talk about it in general, men or women. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily know why. Do you, do you have any kind of insight about that? Like, because I know, like, it's a little bit different outside the black community, but just in the black community by itself, it's just like almost like taboo to talk about your feelings, period. Yeah, I think, and this is just my opinion, so it might just be yeah. anecdotal, but from my experience, like we're conditioned, all of our behaviors are conditioned. Like think about how many black men you know that say something like, oh, I've never seen my father cry. I've never yeah. seen any man in my family cry. And think about what that does to your perception of emotions as a young child where you think, you know, like, it's not, this isn't okay, or this is just normal for me to not share anything. Um, and listen to, like, look at the music we listen to or the movies that we watch, how many different representations of hyper-masculinity and a lack of self-care and self-compassion do we see over and over and over again to the point where that we're just indifferent to it and we might not even notice it anymore. Like, if you really look, listen to any, like, vast majority of these rap music songs like mm -hmm. listen if you dissect the words you'll see like how many coping mechanisms do men find so easily because they're not finding an outlet to do it in a healthy way like guys either smoke or they drink or they're mm -hmm. you know maybe even they're using like they're they might be manipulative towards women and using promiscuity as an outlet to mm -hmm. to you know to kind of like let go of whatever they're holding on to. And, and those things are harmful. It's harmful to ourselves to, to always put ourselves in a position where we're relying on some external factor, of, let's say a, a drug or alcohol to get us right. Mm -hmm. Or we're putting women in harm's way to deal with our emotions and putting the labor and onus and responsibility on them to take that on. Like that shouldn't be the norm, you know? And it's, uh, I kind it probably goes deeper than that, but like from mm. my vantage point, this is what I've seen and this is what I've even experienced um, with how, how easy it was for me to, to, to dump my emotions and, you know, without even knowing it, burden women in my life with stuff I was going through rather than take it head on and rather than like sit with these emotions and try to figure out how is it that I feel? Because mm -hmm. um, oftentimes growing up, like, if you told, we talked about this before we even started recording, like, when was the last time you told one of your best friends that you loved them, and how would they, how would they react? Like, more times mm -hmm. than not, they, they would 
they would react in a way that they would try to laugh it off or they wouldn't respond in the, in the same manner that you had hoped, mm-hmm. um, where emotions were just not readily accepted amongst black men. And um, we got to try to do a better way to, to like normalize that. Like for me personally, I want to say it was maybe 2018 when I first started journaling mm-hmm. and it, the hardest thing for me to do was to write a compliment about myself to give myself any type of affirmation. And the first thing I did was like, I wanted, like my task is I have to write one compliment about myself in this, in this journal prompt. And I couldn't right. do it. Like I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything nice about myself. I was so fixated and so conditioned to like having this self deprecating talk and this negative self talk. You right. see it all the time. Like it's so normal. If you are in college and, you know, if you got a, a C on a test, you're like, man, I'm so stupid. Or, mm-hmm. man, like, if you're just casually talking about yourself, like, oh, man, my, my stupid behind, I couldn't figure out how to do this rather than that. And so you're, like, so caught up in this pattern of talking about yourself in a negative way that when you get put with, it, with the task that says, all right, do the opposite, think positively about yourself, you struggle. I went through that. And right. that was a big moment for me that I was like, man, I really got to figure out how I can dig myself out of this abyss because this is not sustainable if i'm if i find it so easy to think negatively about myself but i struggle to exude positivity about who i think i am right exactly man it's the point where it's like it's foreign you know like even pointed out like it's foreign to even give yourself compliments like it's it's really easy to to give that that negative self-talk and that's something that you know i've, I've been trying to work on uh, myself is just like anytime I get a negative self thought about myself or, or anything, I just try to like, you know, like take a different perspective behind it, you know, like, and that's just kind of like my way of, uh, my way of like kind of dealing with it. But like you said, it's like this is all, this, for anyone listening, this is all our opinions, by the way. None, no scientific fact behind this. But um, I think the biggest thing that I've, um, one thing that I've actually heard was um, just because of, of slavery, you know, in the black community, why, you know, mental, mental health is so shunned and, you know, emotions because, you know, in times of like slavery and things like that, like they had to, you know, they had to bottle their emotions. Like they weren't allowed to, to cry. Like you basically, like you would get beaten because of that. Um, and then with everything, like the movement and, and things like that, um, they was still like, they were, black people were still like dehumanized. Like they weren't treated as, as people. So it was almost like their emotions got pushed to the side yet again. And, um, and so that wasn't that long ago. That was over like, you know, 40, 50 years ago, which is still in recent memory. Like there's still people alive. Like my dad was born in the sixties and he dealt with segregation. So it's like, it's very recent. And I just think like you said, like it got passed down to, um, the generations after that. And then now that like, we're dealing with it because we've learned it from people who had to deal with it. And now we've learned it from people that learned to deal with it. And now we're just dealing with it. And so yeah. it's almost like it's just it's being passed down. And, um, and at least that's kind of like one thing that I've um, when I speak to people, like that's one thing they pointed out to me. So I think that that could be a reason. But there's like a mixture of things that could possibly be going on. No, I think that's true. There's um, uh, there's this educator. Her name is Dr. Joy Negroy or something like that. I, I might be mm-hmm. mispronouncing the last name. Um, and I want to say she's an educator in Portland. But she wrote a book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. It's like really, really good book. And in mm-hmm. that book, she, she touches on like w- what your last point was and how in slavery, like 
when they would have these auctions, um, the parents wouldn't want to like have their families split apart. So mm-hmm. they would talk negatively about their children. Like, no, he's not good. He's not strong. He's, you know, he's ugly or whatever, because mm-hmm. that they wanted to deter these auctioneers from buying their family. And what that ends up manifesting into is this intergenerational approach of normalizing self-deprecating talk about yourself or your loved ones. You know, and another example is like, how many times would somebody, would another adult compliment your parent about you Mm. and your parent would respond like, oh man, this guy just gives me trouble or this guy, he's, he's, he's all over the place. And their, their first reaction is to jokingly, uh, like negatively talk about their, their child. And right. we normalize that, like, oh, that's normal. My, my parents, they're just messing around. But yeah. these things, have, like, these actions have patterns to them. And, yeah, like you said, a lot of this stuff was, was tied to, to slavery. And um, I think that, that book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, is if, if people want to reference that. But, yeah, these things, these things have an effect generation after generation. They don't just pop up out of nowhere. So self-deprecating talk has been normalized for decades, maybe even centuries, because of what our history is as, bl- as a black people. Yeah, for sure, man. It's And it's like, like you said, like, it doesn't pop up out of nowhere. Like, it's not like we just start, you know, passing down this, this uh, these traditions and things like that. Like, you know, traditions come from, you know, a culture or something that's happened in, in our in our history, and then we just pass it down. But no, I think that's... um. I think that's that's huge. I love the fact that you even shared that. I definitely want to go check that out and uh, even check out that that uh, professor that was talking about that. But I just think that it's some whatever, like regardless of what has transpired in the past, like it's a new you know, things are different now. So we don't necessarily have to take the actions that our ancestors took. And um, I think it's like like you talked about earlier, like learning to unlearn some of the, these all of these like these these habits these. Um, just these traditions, just these things that we do. Um, I just, I don't know, man. I think it's just kind of crazy that, you know, we're, we're, we're at a point now where it's almost like at the rest of the world is kind of, is figuring it out in terms of like mental health, but the black community is almost stuck in mud, right? Like they're in quicksand. Like we're not really making strides as much as I believe we should be making. Right. And it doesn't have to be that way. Like there's, it's more accessible than people believe it to be. And, one of the things I want to make sure that listeners kind of get out of this is let's say there's a, there's an African-American or there's a black person who's listening to this episode and they're saying, okay, wow, this stuff is really dope. Like I want to start going to therapy. What steps do I need to take? And here's a, you know, we talked about this maybe a couple of weeks ago when I shared mm-hmm. that article with you of like how to interview a therapist to make sure that the therapist is right for you. Um, and some of the stigma behind therapy is like, well, I don't know this person. This person's a stranger. I don't want to disclose my information. Like, um, you know, how am I going to figure out whether or not they're cool with some of the stuff I want to talk about? And with my own journey with therapy as of recently, um, I was this article got shared to me by somebody of like how to how to determine whether or not the therapist is right for you. And the, the article listed out like all these different scenarios and questions that you should ask. And a couple of things that it mentioned was, you know, when you're going through your search for, for therapists, one of the things that I looked at was I wouldn't look at a therapist if their profile online said that they didn't take free consultations. 
So mm-hmm. everybody I looked at, like I wanted to make sure they allowed me to have a free consultation to talk to them about what I wanted to use therapy for. I didn't want to just show up like, like it'd be a blind date. Like I wanted to have the opportunity to know like, hey, this is what I would like to use therapy for. These are the, these are the topics that I would like to talk about. Are you comfortable with that? Um, you know, here's how I identify. Do you serve this type of demographic? Because not all therapists just serve all, ty- all the same people. You know, mm-hmm. some specialize in different, different uh, like demographics, whether it's kids, whether it's elderly folks, whether it's uh, couples therapy. Like you got to ask these questions to figure out, like, what's your main clientele? What do you have the most experience with? Are you comfortable with these topics? Are you comfortable with me being myself? So if I'm telling a story and I want to let off a couple curse words because I'm angry, are, will you give me the space to do that? And mm-hmm. You either get the feedback that you get will either empower you to say, yeah, this is this is a dope match or it'll give you the feedback that says hey, I need to look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think those are really cool takeaways. Like if if there's somebody who's thought about, man, I want to go to therapy or I'm looking at somebody, but I don't necessarily know what to ask to, to ease my nerves. Those are a couple of things that you could implement within that first phone call or that first in-person session to kind of set the foundation for this is what this working relationship would look like to allow me to heal. Absolutely, man. And it's crazy because like, I think a lot of people don't even like when they seek out a therapist, they don't necessarily think about those, those factors. They just look for one just to have one like, Oh, okay, this person's available. Um, cool. Let me go there. But like you said, it's gotta be a match too. Um, Cause you have to one, feel comfortable in the space to talk to the therapist in the first place. But then two, like to be able to, uh, provide you with, like you said, like the things that you that you need or whoever may need um, in order to get the most out of the session and the sessions going forward. Um, it's just got to be on both sides. So I'll definitely link that like uh, that article uh, that way. You know, anyone that's interested, they can definitely, you know, at least kind of peruse, kind of look through it and see like, OK, like that's something you want to do. Then by all means, please go ahead. And even if, even if you don't want to go to therapy just yet, um, one thing that I've, I've done because I haven't gone yet. Um, I just talked to, to people close to me and by people, I mean my girlfriend, but I've talked to her and, you know, it's been a process. It's not going to happen overnight as far as like, you know, unlearning all these, these habits and these, these things that we kind of, um, just naturally do and, and subconsciously do. But, um, at the very least, like having a conversation with someone you trust, whoever they may be to kind of like open the door, you know, and at the very least, like once you start that, that process, and then you can start moving forward with it, um, but at the very least, I think just being aware, like at least like kind of like take a minute to kind of look back and think, OK, like, you know, what are some things that you kind of felt like you, you know, when you felt a time where you felt strongly about something and you didn't say anything or you just kind of put it to the side. Um, but I think, like you said, like the very least, like at least like take the action to start learning when it's, you know, it's OK to actually, you know, have emotions and have feelings. But it's just I don't know, man, I think that's um. I think that's something that's going to take a lot of long time, but I love the fact that you're open to even talking about this and, you know, kind of getting this thing started. Uh, no problem. Man. Yeah, the, the journey of, of like self-evolution and self-mastery is a never ending one. Like you're never going to be a finished product as a person. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's, if you're looking for the right time to start, there will never be a right time because you're never going to be a finished product. You're learning, you're evolving on a daily basis. So you know, therapy might not be for everybody, but at least try to find an outlet, whether that's drawing or writing poetry or 
you know, for some people, watching basketball is, is therapeutic. It gives them an outlet where they can kind of just enjoy something. So that's what I encourage people to do because it made a huge help in my life. And I've talked to a couple of different people in the industry, a lot of my close friends who, who are open about the same thing. And once these things are normalized, you realize, like, man, it's okay to, it's okay to be sensitive to how I feel. It's okay to emote. It's okay to, you know, express to other people how I feel about them and to create healthy boundaries and to use this to allow me to, you know, live a life that is, that's one that I can be proud of. Facts, man. No, I definitely like to me, like in my opinion, like, I mean, this is probably the most important conversation I've ever had, like, in all honesty, like in terms of podcasts and just in general um, to get this kind of information, this kind of like, just like that perspective from someone else that that's been through it. And that's wanting to talk about it. Um, I think like in, in my experience, like I've, like I said, like I've had women who are, you know, open to talking about that. And like my girlfriend now who's open to, to kind of like helping me through it now, but it's never really come from, you know, another man. And that's, that's really like, that's where I want this to get to, to the point where, like you said, it becomes normal. Like it's not just like, you know, a therapist that had, you have to talk to, or even just like someone, you know, like who's had experience, like you want to reach out to them. It could be someone, you know, in your own family, in your own circle, because I don't think it be, it'll become normal until you you start with yourself, right? It's gonna be it's gonna be weird. I think, in my opinion, at first, because even now, like it's still kind of like a challenge. But you know, we're not gonna get anywhere by just staying in our comfort zone, right? I hate 100%. to sound like a coach. It's, it's, I hate to sound like a coach, but it's the truth. Like it's gonna be comfortable uh, before it becomes easy. So uncomfortable before it becomes easy. So I think just having the conversations, like to me, like that's gonna be the start of everything. So. Like I said, man, I appreciate you for even uh, for even willing to talk about that in, in your life and stuff like that and share that, that personal information. Oh, no doubt, man. No doubt. All right, man. So well, uh, one more question, a couple more questions, and we'll let you get out of here. I don't want to talk your ear off. I know we could probably talk all day, but uh, <laughs> I want to make sure like you enjoy at least the rest of your day and stuff like that. So uh, the big question I always ask everybody is um, it's always kind of like, like a, just an opinion different perspective that people tell me like they, they wouldn't change anything. But um, if you could give yourself advice three to four years ago, what would it be? And would that change anything today? Um, the advice I would give myself would be to start healing and to like start exploring the depths of my personality at much at a much younger age. I would have given myself the, the gift of self-love and emotional intelligence. Like, there's nothing else I would change in my journey in terms of where I would have worked or how I would have done in school. The thing that I always think about is if the person that I am becoming will meet the person that I am meant to be, what does that interaction look like? And the second thing I always think about is how different could my life be if I always had respect and love and admiration for who I am. And mm. for so many different for so many years, like, I didn't have that feeling. I didn't possess the ability to look in the mirror and like what I saw and compliment myself. And in turn, that, that affects how I showed up in different places. That affects how I showed up in internships or with friends or some of the decisions that I made. Like, imagine where you could be if you had a healthy relationship with yourself from day one. And that mm. would be the thing I would change. I, I think about that all the time. Like, that's why my sense of urgency is so much higher towards um, seeking help for mental health and finding different therapeutic outlets, whether it's watching basketball or going hiking or traveling, it doesn't matter. Like I'm open to anything that allows me to grow and evolve because I know 
that if I could if I could express the love and positivity I have for myself in my own life, then that'll show up with how I interact with others. And ultimately, I want to be able to exude that level of positivity so that other people that can empower other people to to realize their gifts as well. So it would just be the gift of of self-love and the gift of increasing my emotional intelligence. Facts, man. No, that's that's probably the best one of the best answers I've ever gotten. Because it wasn't it wasn't just about like, you know, oh, I would, you know, go to this internship where I do this. Like it was very deep and, and insightful. So shit, man. <laughs> hey man, that's that's a dope that's a dope ass answer, man. Like probably the appreciate probably that. Like, probably the like, I would say man, probably like the most articulated answer I've gotten ever on this podcast. So oh, thank I, you. I, I picked picked a great person for the for season two opener. <laughs> oh man, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. All right, man. So I'm gonna let you get out of here, but I want to make sure people are able to find you on IG because I feel like you put out such great information, such great content. I want people to be able to find you and and start learning from you because I've already started learning from you. You've already helped me in many ways and like did it all for free. So um, what are, what are your social media accounts like Instagram? I don't know if you have Twitter. Um, how can people find and reach Zay? Oh man, thank you. Um, I've only got one social media account. Like that's it. It is uh I'm on Instagram. It is Zay underscore West. So Z A Y underscore W E S T. Um super responsive on there. I'm I'm on Instagram every single day. So if you shoot me a message or comment on something or DM me, I'll be pretty responsive. I uh, try my best to put out some some decent content and hopefully in the in the new year I'll be uh be a little bit more productive with some other ways that I can get my content out, whether it's through writing blogs or getting on some other podcasts as well. So if you follow me there, that's your one-stop shop for everything to come for what I got going on career-wise. No doubt, man. All right, I'll make sure I, I link that uh, that IG um, profile so people can find you. And um, yeah, for sure, man. Like I, like I said, man, you've helped a bunch of people already. You're like a hidden gem. You're right. Like you put out such great information. I want to make sure everyone can find you and everybody can start learning from you. Like I have, like just, just from messaging you back and forth. And then even like having you on the podcast, I've already learned a lot. So Zay, man, I want to appreciate you. Uh, I want to tell you, I appreciate you for coming on and, and taking the time and, and giving all this valuable insight to everyone that's listening to this podcast, man. Oh, thank you, man. I, I appreciate you. This is definitely, um, this is definitely a great experience to be on this show and, like I said in the beginning, man, I'm proud of you for the work that you're doing. Keep doing everything that you got going on on your end, and you're uh, you're trailblazing a new path. So it's definitely not easy to have your own show and to you know try to find guests to get on the show. But you're, you're doing a great job. You're already in in season two, so keep up the hard work, man. I'm I'm happy for everything you got going on on your end too. Thanks, man. And uh, oh yeah, after we we get off, man, definitely got to talk about. Some uh, some other stuff we can start doing with like, you know with each other and, and collaborate on, it, giving some more information and some more valuable uh, stuff out to the public, man. I'm all for it, man. Let's do it. Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate you, man. And gonna let you go, but like I said, thank you again, man. And you have a great day, homie. Appreciate it, man. You too. Thank you for listening to the Basketball and Barbells podcast. I really hope you all got major value from today's episode. Please leave a rating and review of the show and don't forget to tune in to the next episode.